นโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนมัสสานไม่ได้จำเป็นว่าเมื่อครั้งที่แล้วผมพูดถึงบทสนทนาของมหามังคลสุตตะผมคิดว่าผมลืมการร้องเพลงของผมเมื่อครั้งที่แล้วคนอื่นก็อาจจะไม่ได้จำเป็นแต่ไม่ได้แปลว่าเราจะเริ่มใหม่ก็ได้แต่เราจะเริ่มใหม่ก็ได้แต่เราจะเริ่มใหม่ก็ได้แต่เราจะเริ่มใหม่ก็ได้แต่เราจะเริ่มใหม่ก็ได้แต่เราจะเริ่มใหม่ก็ได้แต่เราจะเริ่มใหม่ก็ได้แต่เราจะเริ่มใหม่ก็ได้แต่เราจะเริ่มใหม่ก็ได้แต่เราจะเริ่มใหม่ก็ได้แต่เราจะเริ่มใหม่ก็ได้แต่เราจะเริ่มใหม่ก็ได้แต่เราจะเริ่มใหม่ก็ได้แต่เราจะเริ่มใหม่ก็ได้แต่เราจะเริ่มใหม่ก็ได้แต่เราจะเริ่มใหม่ก็ได้แต่เราจะเริ่ม Respectfully, boy. <laughs> so uh, I think where we are up to is this verse that says, "Giving with dhamma in the heart, offering help to relatives and kin, and acting in ways that leave no blame. These are the highest blessings." I think this is um, where we were up to. Does anybody want to disagree with that and tell me we've already done that verse or? Um, We missed the verse out or something. Nobody's going to object to that. So, I think that's uh, that's where we're up to. Um, giving with dhamma in the heart, offering help to relatives and kin, and acting in ways that leave no blame. These are the highest blessings. Certainly, the intention or the wish, the interest that we all have in in living a blameless life is. Uh, It's very real. Uh, I, I, I come across it regularly in talking with people who are so concerned about what they see as going on in the world and the, the struggles, the, the sadness, the, what seems to be the continual intensification of uh, difficulties. And, and all of us, of course, all have been around for a good while now and getting older and hopefully a little wiser and. And uh, we are, you know, also approaching our our end, and probably, certainly, by now we should have been thinking about it. Uh, it's, uh, and there is, out of this, can can grow a very natural, unhealthy sense of what can I do to help? What can I do that makes a difference? And this discourse the Buddha gave, the, the discourse on on great blessings, the highest blessings, I think, is always a good place to keep going back to. Say, what can I do to help? What can I do that makes a difference? And we can be burdened down with thinking, "Oh, yeah, you know, my little donation to such and such a charity is not going to make any difference," or my going on a march, or my writing a letter to so and so, pointing something out, some injustice. And we might feel that our efforts are, are very limited or inadequate, and 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 sometimes, um, you know, they are very limited. But there's no reason why we should start to feel powerless. And uh, I think when you when we look at these verses here, I think my, I can always find in every single stanza I can always find something more than I can do. Uh, and I I think it's uh, it's skillful in, in one's daily life practice to take something like this this discourse and take one verse and maybe to read it in the morning. And to contemplate it the whole day, and to go back to it again in the evening. So, well, how did I do? 
you know, how did I do today? I mean, on Sunday we can talk about it, and you might decide to take that verse for the whole week. That's also all right. Or I, I think it's also very good to use the ten paramitas like this, to take one of the ten paramitas starting the day and saying, well, okay, today dana. I'm going to think about dana all day. Of course, you've got work to do and people to talk to and dishes to wash and clothes to clean and, and deals to strike and emails to answer and so on. We all have all that as well. But we can keep going back to this theme of Dhamma. And it was one of the ten parameters, like Dhamma, generosity, or one of these verses like this verse here, giving with Dhamma in the heart, offering help to relatives and kin, and acting in ways that leave no blame. This is something that, you know, there's loads of room for contemplating this. And if we do contemplate these things, well then we actually, we don't feel powerless. Because what we're doing is we're paying attention to Dhamma, we're paying attention to reality, we're paying attention to the things that really do make a difference. Giving a donation to such and such a charity might make some difference in the short term, but if we want to see what's really the problem, what really has always been the problem, is now the problem, never shall be the problem in the world, is ignorance, it's human ignorance, the lack of, of appreciation for what is real what is Dhamma, what actually makes a difference. And this discourse on generating the highest blessings, the, the Buddha was pointing out what we can do. And uh, so whether we do take one of these verses for a week or for a day or one of the, the parameters, uh, to regularly reflect, uh, again, something that the Buddha encouraged you, regularly reflect on Dhamma themes. They, they become internalized, they become implanted in the heart. We can read a book or we can hear a talk once maybe and say, oh that's great or I agree with that or get inspired by it. But then we can go off and do various other things and it doesn't necessarily take root. Now for things to take root the Buddha is pointing out it's good to, to, I'm trying to think of the Pali word that he used actually, I can't think of it right now, but this regularly reflecting over and over again reflecting on a theme and it conditions the mind but it conditions the mind in a wholesome way it's the same like the contemplation we have on impermanence regularly reflecting on impermanence means that the mind disengages from the deluded perception of things being permanent when they're not and uh, so that's one example likewise with these these other Dhamma themes to regularly reflect on them to write them down that's why I do the calendar each year well, it's one of the reasons why I do the calendar each year. Another reason is if I don't do it, somebody else will. I probably won't agree with their design. That's uh, also a good reason why I do <laughs> little confession there. And they're trying to take it off me. Somebody down south is trying to get to do the calendar, and I'm holding on. And attachment there. So, um, But uh, one of the motivations for doing the calendar is I think it's really nice for people to have something stuck up on the wall, some good thing to look at. Oh yeah, and you read it and you go back to it. Unfortunately, next year's calendar, I confess, you haven't seen it, but the print didn't turn out quite dark enough on the text. So um, the print is a bit grey, so you've got to look a bit close. But then maybe looking closer, you'll remember it even better. And uh, next year's quotes are all teachings by Ajahn Chah and learning from nature. And uh, seeing these up on the wall every day for a whole month, or what I used to do was take a verse of Dhamma and, and I would write it on a big piece of paper and pin it up on the, beside my walking meditation track. 
and I would walk up and down, walk up and down through the day, and I would see this verse and memorize this verse and reflect on this verse over and over again. And by so doing, it sinks in. And once you've made a point of memorizing it to start off with, then you just got to glance at it, and the message gets reconfigured within us. So this is an exercise that uh, is really worth considering and taking seriously, this regularly reflecting on themes of Dhamma. And so giving with Dhamma in the heart to, to reflect on, on what that means. So it's through the day one can consider every time you, you give something, offer something, whether it's offering the candles and incense and onto the shrine in the morning, which is, I think, is always the best way to start the day. You know, whether one's rushing through it and just oh, get my ritual out of the way or whether one is offering with this heart of gratitude and gladness just for a moment to stop and think how fortunate I am to have these teachings that help me understand this mess because if I didn't have these teachings I really don't know how I'd manage I find the whole thing actually pretty intolerable a lot of the time but fortunately one's got a teaching that means one can decode it and say oh yeah there's all this chaos but behind the chaos there is there is a bigger picture there is Dhamma there is order, there is truth, there is reality and and uh, so whether one's giving with Dhamma in the heart or whether like giving attention to somebody somebody asks for attention and you just you know give them some sort of casual attention and not really honouring the person here's a person who's asking for attention and we can offer them our attention consciously, mindfully that's offering with Dhamma in the heart to being mindful in our offering of attention or we can be casual and heedless in it or, or to our parents you know you're going to talk to your mother or your father or your relatives or your children, this, I think the next line of this here Offering help to relatives and kin also. To offer help to family in ways that accord with Dhamma. In our relationships, there's always something we can contemplate. Always something we can contemplate. And contemplating about these things does make a difference. So the point that I, uh, I want to make this evening is that whatever situation we're in, there is always something helpful we can do. Helpful for ourselves and helpful for others. And and if we remember that, well, then there's less chance that we're going to get pulled down by all the sadness that there is around, all the, all the difficulties that are around. And acting in ways that leave no blame, to remember that this is our commitment. This is what I'm really interested in. To be honest, I'll tell you, I'm not really interested in getting enlightened. Now, some people think, oh! What sort of Buddhist monk are you? So, well, I'm a Buddhist monk who is really interested in living a blameless life. You know, I just don't want to cause any more trouble in the world. Now, of course, I'd like to be enlightened. I'd like very much to be completely free from ignorance and conceit. Now, I find that a very attractive option. And I do have faith that enlightenment is possible. And some years ago, I used to spend a lot of time thinking about getting enlightened. But uh, my experience as practice proceeds is you can't afford to be using your energy thinking about something out there in the future. I mean, I don't know. I'm not enlightened, so I don't know what enlightenment is. So what do you want to spend your time thinking about? Something you don't know anything about. 
What you want to think about, what I want to think about, is things I do know about, which is suffering and awareness, presence or lack of presence, or lack of awareness, lack of mindfulness. That is very interesting. Of course, behind all that is a deep trust and deep conviction that when there is complete receptivity and complete accurate presence in this moment, then that will be the same thing as enlightenment. But uh, to always be thinking about getting enlightened and how I should be or how I could be detracts, I find, from presence here and now. And so to focus one's attention, and uh, I believe this is what's encouraged in this, this stanza here, uh, acting in ways that leave no blame, to, to be so careful that we're not going to be blamed by anybody. I don't mean criticized. Criticism is, doesn't matter what you do, somebody's going to criticize you. <laughs> doesn't matter how good you are. You know, even the Buddha got criticized, and he was as, as good. They don't come any better than the Buddha. You know, he was as pure and as good as they come, and yet he still got criticized. So what about the rest of us, you know, slobs by comparison? You know, we're certainly going to get criticized. So we don't have to worry too much about criticism, but actually blame when you think, if we do things that are blamable, like things that are really unworthy of respect, and to reflect, what, this is a reflection we're encouraged to take every day, what would the wise think of me now? Like you, somebody who you admire, somebody you look up to, somebody you consider a teacher, a guide in life, you think regularly, where the Buddha encourages us to regularly rethink, what would my teachers think of me now? Yeah. I use this often with Ajahn Chah. You know, there's something going on in the monastery, I need to make some decision or other, and I think, well, what would Ajahn Chah think of my decision? Yeah. What would he think of my behavior? I <laughs> don't think he'd be very impressed with that. So, okay, we'll better restrain ourselves. And, so that reflection helps, to regularly reflect what would our teachers think of us now. But we're not just doing that uh, in a way that's trying to make ourselves feel bad because of all our limitations. We're all acutely aware of our limitations. We don't need to feel bad about how limited we are, but rather to connect with that natural longing we have to be blameless, to not cause suffering in the world. We're tired of all the the greed that has spun this planet out and created such a state of imbalance and injustice. There's far too much food on the planet already and so many people are starving. There's all the medicine to cure the diseases, but it doesn't get distributed. And the injustices, we know what it's like. We don't want to add to the greed. We don't want to add to the anger. We don't want to add to the confusion and fear. We want to live a blameless life. To remember that wanting that natural interest we have to be blameless and to connect with that regularly to to this reflection of what my teachers think of me now is is a way of helping us reconnect with that, remember what's important to us, what matters, and what can make a difference. And when we're attending to these things, we feel good. When we're attending to Dhamma, actually, we feel good. People might say, oh, what are you doing meditating, wasting your time, you well, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm wasting my time, but, you know, just carry on with it anyway. And we don't have to get into arguments about it. We often, as monks, we often get criticised for sitting, watching our navels all day long and uh, not doing any good. Why don't you get out and do something useful? Well, 
If we know that ignorance is the cause of suffering, the root cause of suffering, individual and collective, global, if we really feel that, well then, addressing the ignorance, we also know that we're doing something that makes a difference. And, and a natural sense of well-being comes from that. So, uh, also, uh, acting in ways that leave no blame, to, to appreciate the place of our formal practice in contemplating this you know, in our daily life, but also in our formal practice, how to have a, a daily practice, or as you know, I recommend six days a week, so it doesn't just become a habit. Six days a week, sitting meditation for however long, yeah. 10, 20, 30, 40 minutes, an hour, whatever feels right, not forcing yourselves or criticizing yourselves or shooting on yourselves about how you think you should be, finding that time, putting it aside, and appreciating how this investment of energy, this investment of attention, of well-disciplined attention, good quality attention, is a, is a really skillful way of learning how to be blameless, of learning how to avoid heedlessness. Because you know, the, we, we, we can start the day or start the week or start the year with the best of intentions, but then we get caught up in our habits. And, uh, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. So uh, to really remember the need to exercise this skill. You know, we can't just have good intentions. You know, so the encouragement is to sit daily, to sit regularly, and no judgment, just to do it. And then little by little what happens is that we do discover where the mind is heedless where the mind gets caught up in attachments, where the mind gets caught up in delusion. And we can hopefully, little by little, learn to accept these faults within ourselves. You know, the deluded mind, the really deluded mind, doesn't think it's got any faults, doesn't think it's got any delusions. Yeah. Yeah. If I knew how deluded I was 30 years ago, I don't know, I think I probably would have killed over and died. Yeah. If I knew what I know now, I just dread to think the effect it would have had on me. Yeah, we can't actually own up to how deluded we are immediately. It's quite a shock. You know, the fact that we are causing our own suffering is quite a shock. We like to think that somebody else is doing it. But it's, and because we think somebody else is doing it, we don't actually make the changes that are need to be made. You know, we need to make changes. We need to own up to the fact that we're creating the suffering in our lives. And, and it's through our heedlessness that, that we make all these problems. So. So, uh, but in formal meditation, then we can, little by little, start to own up to these things and say, oh, yeah, that was really deluded. That was really a stupid thing to do. Well, I'm pleased I saw it. That's great. Like when the mind wanders off the, off the breath, and then you bring it back again. In the beginning, when you start meditating, the mind wanders off the breath, and you bring your attention back, and you say, oh, I'm hopeless. I shouldn't have let my mind wander. That's no good. And so I'll try harder. And so you try harder, and you try harder, and your mind wanders. And you say, oh, I'm really hopeless. And you, you do that for a while, but then after a while, you realize that actually giving yourself a hard time is really not very clever. I mean, it's certainly not kind, and it's not very clever, and it's not very effective. And hopefully we get the message that, that whenever the mind remembers and we come back, whatever it is, whatever that is, that helps us remember. That's good. That's great. That's something to feel really good about. And so instead of giving ourselves a hard time, when the mind comes back, say, wonderful, I remembered. And that's very different. And we do feel good. We feel glad. 
And so we can learn. This makes a difference. And when you realize, oh, this makes a difference, I can learn. If I own up to the truth and say, all right, I forgot, but now I remember, that's really good. And so with, whether it's getting caught up in, in, in forgetfulness and heedlessness or getting caught up in delusion, the judgments that we make or in greed or in anger, and as, as this, we see this in our daily life, in our formal practice, well, then we also see it more in our daily lives, and we can own up to our limitations in daily life, and we don't have to be so embarrassed about our faults and our failures. When we see how deluded and greedy and angry we are, we can feel good. I was recently down in Devon, uh, visiting <clears throat> some friends down there, and stayed in the Devon Vihara with Ajahn Suryo, which is always a treat. And uh, he, was, he was telling me this story of something that happened about, I think, nine years ago when he was living here at the time. He never told me at the time, but, um, and probably just as well, that uh, he, he went off walking for a week, which is fine. I think that's very good. I encourage the young monks to do it. And sometimes they walk from here over to Carlisle and back again. And in his case, he walked up the coast and down again. Or maybe he walked back from Berwick down here or from Edinburgh to here or something. Anyway, he was walking down the east coast and uh, he was coming towards Holy Island and he thought, I'd really like to walk out to Holy Island. Mm. The tide's down and uh, the causeway is just a wee bit further down the coast, you know, I don't know how far, but it's a wee bit further down the coast. But it's a really thick fog. He said, oh, never mind, I'll be okay, I'll be safe. And just set my bearings right and just walk straight. I can walk straight. So if I just walk straight, I know that the Holy Island's there. If I just walk straight, I'll be okay. I can't see very far, but I'll definitely be okay. And the tide will come in probably when it comes in, and we won't make a problem out of that, we hope. Well, interestingly, he set out walking in the thick fog, and 20 minutes later, he arrived at land. He said, wonderful, that was quicker than I thought. I didn't realize I was going to do it in 20 minutes. What's well, curious is these wheat fields. Very interesting. Didn't know there was wheat fields on Holy Island. Last time he was there, he didn't see any wheat fields. Well, then blow me down. If you didn't realize, he'd walked in a complete curve. He thought, and he was quite sure, he was absolutely sure he was walking in a straight line. But what he had done was walk in a complete curve and come back on the land again. And then he realized actually how lucky he was. I mean, it was a really, really stupid thing to do. A really deluded bad decision to try and walk out across there in the thick fog, not knowing when the, the tide was coming in. So, um, but anyway, the point of the story is, the moral of the story is that when we realise, if our, if our minds are prepared, when we realise how deluded we are, we feel good about that. We feel bad on one level because it's sad to see delusion, or it's sad to see greed, or it's sad to see desire and anger. But the fact that we can see is something we can feel good about. So, But this takes a certain preparedness of mind, readiness of mind. And and so I do really encourage uh, people in a regular meditation practice. And here, hopefully, our example to the lay community is an encouragement for people to keep at it. We keep at it year in, year out. Pretty boring bunch of guys, really. There's nothing very entertaining ever happens out here. But that's our example. We're not into being interesting. You know, we do the same old yo-so every night of the week and uh, 
nothing much changes, we all bow in the same way, there's no room for creative bowing or tie-dyeing your robes. Some of us have thought about it, but there's no room for that. But where we can be creative actually is in our inner inquiry. And if we want our inner inquiry to really bear fruit, it's important, it's very important to be regular, just with regular reflection, regularly going over Dhamma themes, also regularly inquiring into, to sit every day, preferably at the same time if possible, and we start to see patterns. We start to recognize patterns and say, oh, that's where, that's where I'm heedless, that's where I'm losing energy. That always giving myself, always giving myself a hard time over that actually doesn't help. For 54 years I thought that was actually a good idea. And at last I realized, no, that's not a good idea. That's good to see. But we don't get to see that stuff very easily, always. If we're not regular in our practice, we're not regular in our sitting, not regular in our inquiry, not consistent, then it just doesn't work. Like that story you've probably heard me tell before about the Aborigines I once saw when I was in Northern Australia. They'd been out and shot a kangaroo and brought it back on his shoulder and they're going to cook the roux on the fire and to get the fire going kind of rubbing these sticks together and uh, you've heard about it you heard well this is something you can do but when you see these guys actually doing it it's hard work you can't just rub for a little couple of minutes and then break and have a cup of tea you know you've got to you got to rub and really rub and keep rubbing you've got to keep at it keep at it keep at it until it ignites because you know, it builds up, it builds up, builds up, and then there's the intensity and ignites. And it's like that with practice. We've got to keep at it. We've got to keep at it regularly, regularly, coming back over and over again. And if we do that, well, then little by little things shift, and we start to see for ourselves. We start to see for ourselves the real causes for our suffering, the deep causes for our suffering. To take our practice deeper is not necessarily something we can do as an act of will. I think a, possibly a more important factor for deepening of practice is interest. To be really interested and to meet that interest with regular effort. And to express that interest and that effort with questions. To really, to, when we find a real question, we find a real deep question for our life, for ourselves. You know, what, what's really important? What really matters? Or how do I go forward? To really respect the question, to keep going back to the question, maybe to write the question down and put the question up on the shrine, to honour the question. At least in Buddhism, that's that's the practice. I, I don't know if some of you heard the there was a uh, interview with a bunch of scientists. Oh, I think it was on Radio Four not so long ago, and the scientists are now questioning whether the, the Big Bang is such a good theory after all. They thought the Big Bang was, you know, for a while all the scientists agreed the Big Bang was, this is how it all began. And Well, now some of them think that's a bit last century and they're, they're coming up with a new theory and I'm not sure what they suggested. But in the course of this interview, they quoted St. Augustine and, and uh, somebody had asked St. Augustine, what was God doing before he created the universe? And St. Augustine apparently replied, he was creating hell for people like, like you who ask questions like that. And <laughs> Now, I don't know whether St. Augustine was cracking a joke or, or what, but, or maybe that's, the, you know, maybe that's a particular path of practice, but certainly that's not something that, um, that, that the Buddha would encourage, that you know, asking, you know, 
what was God doing before the universe was being created? I mean, well, what was before the universe was created? That's a good question. Or like the Zen say, what was my face before I was born or, or something like that? Difficult questions, challenging questions, questions that, that uh, cut through our assumptions are real questions and uh, spiritual questions, heart questions. And, and if we have a commitment to practice, then we can learn how to engage these questions in a way that take our practice deeper. And as our practice deepens, then we do start to see for ourselves the root causes. Like this week we're about to uh, go on silent retreat for a week here, put an answer phone message on and turn the email off and put a notice on the door, see you in a week's time, and uh, respectfully. And what we're interested in doing is how to get deeper in our practice and formal meditation and formal contemplation and, and not dissipating our attention not by all the talking. Heedless talking, socialising, means that we often lose touch with, lose connection with these core matters, with these heart concerns. And so on the, over the next week, we, as a monastic community here, we have this opportunity and hopefully our, our engaging this way also is an encouragement, an example for the rest of you to remember and respect this aspect of practice that is formal practice, the regularity of it and, and the benefit that comes from it. We just, it's, not, it's not enough to just do daily life practice. We need to put time aside and be still, be quiet. His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, I believe, recently commented on this, quite rightly saying that there is no way we can keep getting faster and faster I mean, this idea of perpetual growth of the economy. I mean, what a crazy idea. How can, how can your economy keep growing forever? Yeah, it's just it's a very funny idea. But based on this idea, as a result of this idea, society is just getting faster and faster and technology. And, and there's, a, there's a certain view that this is a good thing. But if you talk to anybody about it, really, there's also a lot of doubt. A lot of uncertainty. Is this doing us any good? We have much more information available to us than human beings have ever had in the entire history of human existence. Much more information readily available now at a higher speed than ever before to more human beings. And it doesn't really seem to be doing us that much good. Well, what the wise beings on the planet have always pointed out is that there needs to be a balance that yes, information and, and, and doing and getting somewhere has got its place, but there's also the real need for wise reflection, for stillness, for quietening down, for turning the light of awareness inwards and coming to see for ourselves what are these causes? Coming to see directly, what are these causes? Like the fear that we feel. There's a question here tonight, actually. Sorry it took me so long to get around to it, but somebody has asked, how do you deal with fear? And... We can think a lot about fear and we can imagine what causes there might be in the past. But unless we have a familiarity with our own deep hearts and, and minds and a well-established awareness based in the body, if we haven't invested in this inner work, then to address this question, is, is uh, we can feel defeated all the time. 
you know, anxiety, which is so all-pervasive these days, you know, like collective neurosis of certainly the Western world. Everybody's in a state of some degree of anxiety. And it can feel very personal. It can feel like me, that I've got a problem because I feel anxious. I wake up in the morning, I feel anxious. I'm going to a meeting, I feel anxious. I go to town, I feel anxious. I come home, I feel anxious. To some degree, it can feel like that. And we can, as I take it very personally. If we, however, learn to, if we find a way of quietening down the mind and with some well-directed, kind, patient, here and now, judgment-free awareness, look into our own hearts, then in this simplified and quieter relationship with ourselves, we, we start to be able to read our own hearts. And, and for instance, one of the things we can start to see is the relationship between desire and fear. And fear is such an awful, painful condition, and so so threatening and so and can be so terrible that it's quite understandable that we, we can give rise to the desire to get rid of it or get away from it. But in our quiet minds, in our quiet hearts, what we start to see is that actually desire and fear are like the front and the back of the hand. They go together. Even the desire to get rid, for, rid of fear, even the desire to get rid of anger, if we, the desire for anything, if we grasp a desire if we grasp the desire, well then actually we empower the opposite. We grasp the desire to get rid of fear. We actually empower the fear that we're not going to get rid of our fear. The desire to, uh, if we're not sleeping so well, a desire to have a good sleep generates the fear that we're not going to sleep. They go together. Now, no, th- no, matter, no, no thinking about that is really going to do the work. We need to see that for ourselves inwardly. We need to see the direct connection between desire and fear and, and the process of attachment. What, what is attachment? What's really going on Like with my attachment to the calendar? Fairly trivial thing, you might think. <laughs> well, there are other attachments as well. We have all sorts of attachments. And being on formal meditation retreat for the next week... Yeah formal retreat, silent retreat, we get to see the attachments. If we put time aside regularly, we start to feel for ourselves this dynamic, this dynamic, this actuality. You know, in mind, can, you can be sitting there and with a little skillful directed attention become quite peaceful and happy and calm. And, and then up comes a sort of... Irritation. <laughs> or maybe it's sort of a more insidious, sort of warm, cuddly, sort of little, sort of fluffy bunny feeling. So, mm, nice, a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah. so, but it's not peaceful, is it? Actually, if the mind is quiet, these irritations, these, these, these impressions are seen and felt for what they really are. They're really irritations. Uh, yeah, a lot of our thinking... Uh, a lot of our thinking, a lot of things we pay attention to is irritating. It's like we're like sticking, sticking pins into ourselves the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Very unpleasant. But if we don't see that directly for ourselves, well, then we can think that there's something outside that's causing us the problem. So in, in dealing with something like fear or desire, we need to uh, have a certain preparedness of mind, a strength of mind, a strength of heart, that means we're daring enough, willing enough, to ask the question 
and let it take us deep. You know, what is this suffering about? And listen to the question, feel good. What is this suffering? What am I attached to? What? Not to rush to an intellectual answer. Now that's tempting to, if I, you know, that's what we're all trained to do. Just get an intellectual explanation. Because this happened, that happened, that's why. But we tried that and it still didn't work. And so how do we go deeper? We listen to the question and we feel to the tone of the question. We feel for the tone behind the question. If our attention is well disciplined, we can do this. We can feel into the body. What is the tone of this question of how do I deal with fear? We can feel, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to deal with it. Well, that's interesting. Already we've got a handle on it. I'm afraid I'm going to fail at dealing with my fear. Yeah. Now, I think somebody else is responsible for it. That's why. Well, that's interesting also. And whatever it is, we get to, we connect with it for ourselves and we get to see it for ourselves. And that makes a difference. And little by little, we start to see how attachment or this process of finding identity, we find identity in the stuff of our minds. But as Buddhists, we say, I go for refuge to the Buddha, Buddhang Saranangachami, which is what I'm saying. I find identity, I seek identity in awareness itself. That's what I orientate my life towards. I, I commit myself to finding my identity, my true identity, in the Buddha awareness, in the edgeless awareness that anything can arise and cease, and anything can pass through awareness. The Buddha's awareness was completely transparent, completely permeable. There was nothing that got stuck from the time of his enlightenment and the Buddha's awareness. It could come, arise, cease, be there, be recognized, and then pass away again. For us, however, because of our ignorance, our habits of ignoring this false relationship we have with the stuff of our minds, things arise, beautiful things, and we grab them. And then we distort, we disfigure our awareness. Awareness collapses. And then as we grab something beautiful, well, then we automatically also grab out of fear something that's ugly, and we, we have this habit of grasping, and these patterns of grasping become unconscious attachments. Well, the good news is that uh, if we really take this commitment to this refuge of the Buddha or, or edgeless, choiceless awareness seriously, well, then little by little we, we start to disidentify from these patterns, these habits of attachment. And Sometimes fear increases, sometimes desire increases, but then we also make our refuge, our commitment to the refuge, stronger. And then slowly, it's like an untangling. There's an image that Ajahn Chah used to give, these knots and tangles that we get ourselves caught up in. With awareness, with sensitivity, with patience, if you've got a a, a knotted piece of yarn or or wool or, or cord or nylon or whatever, you start pulling it. And so you're going to, and little by little, if we're patient enough, feeling sensitive enough, kind enough, and consistent enough, then these tangles start to undo themselves. And uh, hopefully we get a new appreciation of what this verse is talking about, is cultivating the highest blessings, and acting in ways that lead no blame. We, we find that we have the ability within ourselves to make a difference. It's not... Some things we can't change in the world. Some things we can change. And of course, if we can, we try. But there's some things we can't change. But we can, what we can change is the level of ignorance in the world. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs> Thank you.